Hey everybody, welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, last week we, we reviewed the bizarre X-Men number 30 called The Warlock Wakes. Uh, the Warlock, who is a Merlin wizard type character who thinks he's a mutant, builds a crazy kingdom of magic and technology and un- unicorns with wings. <laughs> <laughs> and he tries brainwashing Jean Grey to be his empress, uh, gross. Uh, after a tournament against knights, the X-Men triumphed and Warlock fell back into a coma. And uh, meanwhile, the mysterious threat of Factor 3 is looming on the horizon. Uh, we were honored to be joined last week by uh, Canadian artist Adam Gorham. Uh, this week, we have a, another Canuck with us. Mr. Uh, Jim Zub is with us and we are so excited. And we're going to take a step back out of the X-Men continuity uh, and go earlier in the history just a little bit. We've been reviewing some of their earlier appearances and other titles. We're doing that again today. We're going to be reviewing Fantastic Four Annual Number 3 from October 1965, which is called Bedlam at the Baxter Building. Uh, written by Stan Lee, art by Jack Kirby and Vince Coletta. Colors are by Stan Goldberg and Artie Simek is on the letters. So we're thrilled uh, to, to have a lot of really fun content ready for you today. Now, uh, as we prepare ourselves, uh, let me have each of my guests introduce themselves. Uh, we're gonna start by telling a crazy wedding story from your life and or what is your favorite wedding story from fiction? Uh, Jim, do you wanna start us off? Give us your pronouns and let us know sure. about your wedding stories. <laughs> so my name is Jim Zub. I'm a Canadian comic book writer who lives in uh, Toronto, Ontario. Uh, I've been doing comics for all kinds of different publishers, um, but most people probably know me from the work I have been doing at Image or Marvel, uh, some of the stuff I've done at, at IDW or, or kind of all over the place. So I've, I've done quite a few Marvel books over the years and uh, thrilled to be adding little pieces to the mighty Marvel universe when I can. Um, my pronouns are he, him, and you can find out more about my stuff at jimsub.com. Uh, in terms of wedding story, I've, I'm going to sort of cheat a little bit. I've got a funny little anecdote about my engagement story that I can tell you. So it's related to the wedding. Um, when I went to uh, uh, propose to the woman who is now my wife, we were supposed to go away on a little weekend trip together and uh, heading to the airport. Um, I almost flubbed the whole thing and had to propose to her in the security line, uh, which was <laughs> pretty great. So uh, you got to keep in mind that, that like we were going through security and we were supposed to just go on like a couple day trip. So I had thrown everything into a backpack. It was all carry on. We're heading through the security line and I had like all my, all my shaving stuff, all my like, you know, uh, uh, toiletries and whatever. And that includes all your little scissors and things. So the security guy's like, oh, you can't carry those in your carry on bag, you know, because of the paranoia and the whatever. So he starts just unloading my bag to pull out the stuff. And there's a ring box in the bottom of the bag. And it is a ring box. It's obviously a ring box. There's nothing else it could be. And he just starts unloading all my stuff onto the table. And my girlfriend's standing right there with me. And my heart starts pounding because you can't tell this guy, no, stop doing that <laughs> and everything else. And I'm just like, oh God, oh God. And I'm sort of, I can feel my heart pounding and I'm starting to sweat. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to have to I have to propose to her here in the line at the security, the first half hour of our trip. That's supposed to be when I'm going to propose to her on the trip. Um, and then all of a sudden this, the, the guy on the actual x-ray machine, the, the, you know, detector, he leans over and whispers to the security guy and he just stops mid, you know, disassembly of all my carry on stuff. And then he goes, Oh, that was a mistake. 
And then he just puts everything back in the bag and he zips it up and hands it to me. And I looked at him and he looks at me with this like knowing glance because they figured out what was there because they saw it on the scanner. And they just send me on my way. And I start to walk away. And my girlfriend goes, that is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And as we're walking away, I turn back and the guy does a little finger gun kind of point and winks at me. <laughs> I could not, my, I thought I was going to die on the spot. I thought my heart was going to explode. That was the first hour of my trip that weekend. And, and the whole weekend became this dramatic soap operatic thing before I finally proposed to her and she said, yes. Uh, but that just that little contained moment, I feel like is one of the crazier uh, wedding related things that has ever happened to me. So that is amazing. Do you have a favorite wedding story from fiction that comes to mind? Um, when I was a kid, you know, right in the midst of my crazy collecting days, um, that was when Spider-Man got married. And so I picked up that issue and I was just in awe. Like I was like, oh, they can do that. You know, like it just seemed I was pretty young at the time. I was just sort of amazed that that this character could have this big permanent change. You know, I know early on in the early Marvel canon of the 60s, you know, Peter graduates from high school and all sorts of stuff seemed to be happening. But by the time I was collecting in the 80s, it was a lot of it was about kind of taffy pulling out big moments. They weren't doing those kinds of huge transformative changes to characters. And so right. the Spider-Man wedding was a pretty big deal to me. And I was kind of blown away by it when I read it. And it didn't seem, I know some people say that that was like a really bad thing for the character because now he couldn't be, you know, go on dates and it, and it made him an older character. But to me as a kid, it didn't really change. I still thought Spider-Man was amazing and great. And I collected it like crazy after he got married. It didn't yeah, really when, change it for me. Yeah. When you watch a character date someone for 20 years, <laughs> you wonder when they're going to get married. <laughs> sure. You know, but, there, but you, of course, the whole purpose of those books, you weren't supposed to be still reading at that time. Like you were supposed to have transitioned out to other stuff. That was the audience, you know, by the time we got to that crazy collector days, that was the first time that I think the audience had stuck around for that long in that large a number where they were like, oh, the writers were now fanboys who had grown up on this stuff and wanted the character to kind of age the way they age or write stories that felt more relevant to them, I guess. Yeah. It's just a very different kind of an approach. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, Heather, let's hear you. So my name is Heather and my pronouns are she, her. Um, I don't know that I have anything like super crazy for two of my best friends when they got married. Um, I was a co-maid of honor, but I also ended up officiating their wedding. Um, and so as we were doing the procession out, I was the first one in line because I was the, the officiant and I'm wearing like this light Brown mini dress. I have a red leather jacket on red high tops, like very obviously not in white. And one of the grandparents there thought that I was the bride. Um, and like has all these pictures of me because he thought that I was the bride because he thought that this woman would wear brown and red to her wedding instead of an actual wedding dress, which to be fair, I wouldn't put it past her, but she did not. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just kind of funny because the night before the bride, the other maid of honor and I had a sleepover. And we're sitting there and we're like, and I was like, oh shit. It's like, I don't know what I have to officially say for all of this to be legal. And so we're like Googling what I need to say and 
they wanted to do a hand fasting ceremony. And I was like, I have no clue how to do that either. And so we're sitting there in like, we're all in our PJs and stuff. And I'm tying this ribbon around the hands of the bride and the other maid of honor. And so we like to joke that she actually married the other maid of honor before she married her husband. <laughs> but we also joke that I married both of them. So, so it was it was a good time. <laughs> That's fantastic. Do you have a favorite wedding story from fiction? Um, honestly, the first thing that came to mind isn't actually really a wedding story. So for people who watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it's one of my favorite shows. And I am a big Spuffy shipper and i know people are going to come at me for that please do not i know all the pros and cons um (laughs) and i honestly whenever i heard this question the very first thing that came to mind was the episode where willow unwittingly puts spells on everyone because like whatever she says comes true and so in the midst of all of that she puts a spell um on buffy and spike because she tells buffy well, if you want to be around him so much, because it's whenever he's evil and he's still an enemy and she has to keep an eye on him. She's like, if you like being around Spike so much, why don't you just marry him? And so for the entire episode, they are engaged, quote unquote, engaged and like planning this wedding. And it's so ridiculous because they're being sickly sweet, but they still clearly hate each other. And it, cracks me up every single time and I'm not entirely sure why. So it's not exactly a wedding story, but it's kind of a wedding story. <laughs> I'm literally watching Buffy for the first time right now and I'm on season three. So you're fine. I'm loving it. I've literally never seen it. And I find every episode to be show. I find every episode to be short on plot and long on execution. Like it's incredible, but it shouldn't work and it does every time. Uh, oh it is one of the only, I own two TV shows in their entirety on DVD and Buffy is one of them. <laughs> I also own every single Pop Funko from the Buffy collection. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, my, my name is, uh, my name is Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. Now I have been married once before and I had children and now I'm actually getting married in a few weeks for the second time, which I'm super excited about. Amazing. At my, at my first wedding, we did the big giant to do. It was the, uh, the crazy chapel reception, hundreds of people cake and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it went on for hours. And at the end of the day, uh, our parents got us a horse-drawn carriage to take us Whoa. from the reception to the hotel where we were staying. And it was like 100 degrees, and we were in like full wedding gear, and we got behind this horse, and it took like a full hour to get to the hotel, and the horse kept passing gas, and we're dripping sweat. <laughs> like This is the least sexy wedding that's ever taken place. Uh, my favorite wedding from fiction... Uh, has to be the Red Wedding from Game of Thrones. Uh, <laughs> just in scope, there's just nothing that compares, both in the book and the show versions. Uh, it, it is jarring at a level we can't comprehend. Uh, uh, Jim, do you have a favorite X-Men wedding? There's not a lot to choose from, but do you have a favorite? Um, it's interesting. You know, it, yeah, that's a good question. I, it, it's weird, right? Because a bunch of the... Um, I, I, I like the... I know fans kind of freaked out, but I kind of like the the bait and switch that they did with the um, you know Colossus and Kitty wedding that became the Rogue and and Gambit wedding. It was great. Uh, 
yeah, I thought that was quite amusing and a nice little turn uh, that people didn't see coming. So I guess I'll, I'll throw it to that. Yeah. Uh, we have the Cyclops and Jean Grey wedding, of course, uh, mm-hmm. which was such a huge event at the time in the 90s. Um, and then Marvel's done a lot of big weddings over time, but they're not super frequent. We've had the thing in Alicia Masters recently getting married. Mm-hmm. Uh, but today in our episode, we get to review the first big, crazy, giant wedding, and it sets the trend for all the others. Uh, before we get there, Jim, we're going to spend some time talking about your work. And sure. let, me do, let me do just a brief introduction. Your resume is so impressive at this point. <laughs> oh, thanks. I appreciate you've done, that. You've done work in so many areas. Uh, from Disney to Image to DC, uh, but focusing specifically on your Marvel work, um, mm-hmm. I'm astounded, first of all, as a fan, that how much you've had an impact on various X-Men characters, although you've never been on a main X-Men book. Right, yeah, some that, it's it's weird that you can sort of affect some of these secondary characters in in surprising ways, depending on how these things roll out, yeah. So let me run down a list of just some of your Marvel work. And then for our interview today, I'm going to make it character specific. I'm going to ask okay. you to tell me about uh, your work with particular characters and what you sure. did with them and how you feel about uh, about them. And we'll kind of just have an organic conversation from there. So for those that have not uh, followed Jim Zub's work at Marvel, he has written Thunderbolts and Uncanny Avengers, most recently Avengers Tech On, which is so much fun. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Conan the Barbarian and the Empire Avengers miniseries and Black Panther and the Agents of Wakanda, where he just assembles this giant playground of everything from all over the Marvel <laughs> Universe. And it's wonderful. Uh, and Tony Stark, Iron Man and Avengers and Avengers No Road Home. And then the most ex-specific book, of course, was your miniseries, The Hunt for Wolverine, called Mystery and Madripoor. Mm-hmm. Uh, such, such beautiful work. Um, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. It's uh, an incredible honor to sit here with you and and just talk and nerd out. So thank oh, thanks, you for being here. I really um, appreciate. It. Let's begin. I'm gonna I'm gonna like I said, pick out just a couple of characters you've had some impact on in your work. Let's begin with Quicksilver. Yeah. <laughs> tell us about uh, tell us about your work with Quicksilver, who we of course know from the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants uh, in the books we're reviewing back in the '60s. Um, you know, I don't think I can talk about Pietro if I don't talk about Wanda, because to me, they're very linked, right? And she's she's next. You can mix them together. <laughs> yeah, I think we're just going to end up in one organic conversation in and around them. I think both characters are, are wonderful. And my first, you know, Scarlet Witch is one of my favorite Avengers, and Quicksilver is always tied so closely to that. I remember really fondly, uh, you know, my, so bit of backstory on this, my brother and I became real avid collectors of Marvel books at a real formative time in my life. Um, we obsessed over the official handbook of the Marvel universe. We would like test each other on it. Like we were just couldn't get enough and trying to get key issues or appearances, or you'd read in those, those um, the handbook about the history of these characters. And it's not like now where you can just instantly access this stuff. Thanks to Marvel unlimited or, right. or really robust trade paperbacks. Almost nothing was collected in trade. Like I had two trades growing up. I had the dark Phoenix saga and I had long shot, and I think that's it. Everything else was just single issues because that's what there was in the market. And so we would, you know, a lot of older stuff, our only um, experience from it was either lucking out and finding back issues for reasonable prices or just reading those handbooks and imagining them in our minds. And my brother tracked down um, the Yesterday Quest, which is the sort of the origin of, of Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. And I love 
sword and sorcery stuff fantasy is a huge influence on me and and fantasy comics and fantasy books and and dungeons and dragons and all that stuff so characters who combine magic and superhero stuff is a huge like that's just near and dear to my heart dr strange one of my favorite characters and scarlet witch is one of my favorite characters and in that storyline where they go back to wondagore and they find out all this stuff and 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 the dark hold and all these crazy elements of magic in the marvel universe that just like set off lightning in my mind and so uh quicksilver and wanda just are attached at the hip in that way that the, the relationship and the dynamics between them, the difficulties that they have, the fact that, you know, Pietro is incredibly courageous and heroic and capable, but he's, you know, got the permanent resting bitch face and any, any, you know, has this bad attitude or, or he's is, such an is, asshole. <laughs> he is an asshole, but he's so defensive and protective of those he loves. And he's that kind of person. I've met people like this in my life who are really hard to get to know. But once you break through, they will stay with you forever. Like they will they will be by your side and they will protect you. And that's the way I've always seen him is he is unbearably prickly and defensive at first blush and constantly so until you finally understand that he is loyal. Loyal is to, to death. You know what I mean? He will do anything for the people that he feels is worthy of that trust. And that's the way I've always kind of played him. And so when I took over Uncanny Avengers and he was already um, part of the cast, I was essentially like, well, that's a good reason for us to bring Wanda into the book. And she was coming off of um, Secret Empire and she had been possessed by Cathan and all this sort of stuff. And they didn't have a plan for her at that moment. So I just sort of adopted her into the book. And then we got that brother sister dynamic and all the trouble that that brings right from from the start and so that was really important to me to to set up those dynamics in ways that i feel are really appealing and entertaining but then also try and push them uh and so a lot of my exploration stuff with quicksilver was about trying to show his capabilities trying to show you know his hubris and and in uncanny avengers we kind of broke him a little bit on purpose like he was sort of dating uh synapse who was yeah, on the team yeah. at that point which i thought was a really fun dynamic because she's like the most empathetic and and caring person because she can read people's emotions and subtly affect them and he is the most prickly you know defensive person but she instantly recognizes these qualities in him and sees that he is a good person and wants to she sees goodness in him and they become close and then he screws up in a terrible terrible way and instead of him just being that you know, prickly jerk asshole self, we kind of show a different side to him, like a real depth of emotion and a, and a failing within him, even if it's just for a moment. And even if he only reveals it in this letter that he writes to her, I wanted to show that Quicksilver is deeper and has, you know, deep beliefs and passions that I, that I hadn't really quite seen many other times in, in the way other people necessarily had written him. And then we carried that plot line with him through to Avengers No Surrender. And in No Surrender, he makes this incredible sacrifice to try and save the world. And again, it was with this thing of he's got to prove himself kind of all over again. He's got to go deeper than he's ever gone. And that was really important to me uh, for the character. And that ties right back to, to Wanda. You know, Wanda's this character who is infamous, I think, in the Marvel Universe for a lot of the bad stuff that has happened in and around her whole storylines and plot lines and events that have been built around her magic going, you know, warpo or, or terrible things that manipulations that she's been put under. And to me, I feel like 
as a character, I, how do I put this properly? Like that she is capable of more and that she is much like Quicksilver, I think in that sense, deeper and, and more vibrant than necessarily the tool that she's been used as in some of these storylines. And so it's always been kind of a priority for me to show her, to give her greater agency, to give her more um, purpose and focus in terms of story. Because a lot of times she's a she's a switch that people can flip. Okay, magic solves the problem, or magic makes things worse, or or corruption, and and you know so many of the storylines from the 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 sixties, seventies, eighties are like the the mind rapey equivalent of well you were out of your mind and you're crazy and you did a bad thing and now we forgive you pat pat on the head kind of stuff and it's very condescending and i feel like she's capable of both accepting guilt for what she has done but also stepping past the things that she is not done you know and that was a big part of my story with her in uncanny avengers and the setup that we had where you know, I get the soap opera of the Marvel Universe, of course, and it's near and dear to my heart as well. But one of the problems with the characters with these long, long running histories is when it comes to will they, won't they relationship stuff, they burn so constantly that it just becomes this revolving door that's almost idiotic in the sense that while they're always, you know, is she with Vision? Okay, she marries Vision. Okay, they're apart. Okay, is she with you know, Wonder Man, is she with Vision? Is she with, you know, it's like back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. And I thought like this inevitability of the thing is irritating. And it, I don't know if I'm going to be, you know, doing the equivalent of the midlife crisis for Wanda Maximoff, but this idea of what if she steps out of the hamster wheel and she makes a decision to do something different. And that was another thing that I felt strongly about and kind of you know, my first audience on any of these story pitches or concepts is my editor and convincing them that this is going to be an engaging and worthy story. And I basically pitched them something very similar to what I'm telling to you here, that, that Wanda has done this revolving door thing of relationships and everyone has sort of prescribed for her, she must go this way and she must be with one of these two people based on all the drama that they've done. And I said, well, what if she chooses something else or what if she wants to explore something else and not just being single, but just having other opportunities and other options and stepping yeah. out of that, you know, merry-go-round. And, um, and, and my editor was totally on board with that idea. And that's kind of way, the way we went with it. And you got to was, connect her with uh, Dr. Voodoo and Conan. That's right. Which is that's right. Great. Jericho drum. Yeah. And, and we set that up in, in uncanny in these little subtle ways, kind of, you know, in retrospect, you can look and find it very flirty that they're having these spiritual conversations and discussions about magic. And she's constantly been talking about, you know, she's never had someone to really focus on that side of herself or that ability for her to explore it with someone in a relationship. And so that was another thing I felt like could be really interesting. Give him someone to riff with the fact that she had gone through all these traumas where her body had been taken from her, all this. And then you contrast that with, uh, Dr. Voodoo, whose power, a lot of it is about possession, you know, is about spiritual movements between forms. I was like, well, there's, there's an interesting shared kind of bridge of knowledge to touch on as well. And that, that she can teach him things as well. You know, we, I had quite a few ambitious plans for the two of them, particularly post, uh, no surrender. And then it was just the way that the, you know, it's the, the Marvel universe is not mine and it's not yours. And it's not, 
one editors or one writers. It's a constant moving stream. And so you throw your ideas down and you hope that they take perch and you hope that they take root and, and that people, other people will use some of that material, but that hopefully you can also protect little elements that you want to um, keep, keep building on. And so far I haven't been able to do all I want to do with Wanda. I definitely have pretty ambitious plans for her and Pietro to a lesser degree, but that I would love to do at some point. So I'm always kind of keeping, keeping an eye out for places I can, uh, I can throw a pitch or an idea out to my editors. I would have loved to have seen you on Uncanny Avengers for another five years. Uh, Champions, same thing. Your your work Thanks. on both of those books is some Thanks. of my favorite things. Champions was, yeah, I came in to Champions. Um, it's weird because, the, you know, I was offered the book and I was a little bit hesitant because I didn't know the characters. They're, they're all new characters. And I've got such deep love for, for the long running kind of legacy stuff, which is why I think Uncanny, I was able to really pour my heart into it because you know, Janet Van Dyne's such a phenomenal character and, and Pietro and, and, you know, Jericho and like all these characters that were in the mix there. I love Simon Williams and having that Simon uh, in, in Hank issue, like the beast in Wonder Man. Versus that, Whirlwind. The, yeah, That's great. right. The throwback to like their old kooky, you know, kind of, of team ups in the classic Perez Avengers stuff. Um, that stuff's so near and dear to me. So it's really easy for me to plug into those emotions and when Tom Brevoort offered me champions, my first thought was, oh, I'm not a good fit for this. I like team characters and I've written a bunch of them in my own stuff, but I don't know that I've got a take. And then the more research I did, and that's always a big part of the writing for me is reading the, the existing stories to try and what, what, what light bulbs are going off? What ideas am I getting? What thoughts do I have about these characters? I start to see the exact opposite that because they didn't have a lot of stories, maybe I could start telling some of the seminal stories that people would remember, you know what I mean? Instead of having to compete with decades worth of stuff. Yeah. There's only a, a few years for some of these characters that, that I could really dig in and make some new tracks with these young and hopeful and, you know, characters that in many ways are going to be the next generation of the Marvel universe. You know, the big difference between the comics and now the Marvel cinematic universe is that these legacy characters are going to eventually age out. They're going to move through. And so these characters are going to become that much more vibrant and important. And I was like, Oh, if I could put my stamp on them, wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be an amazing thing to be able to do and help guide them into the future and then make that team as big and vibrant and crazy as we could. And that was sort of my mission statement going into champions. You, know. you did a beautiful job. We've given Wanda, and by the way, I love that you're referring to all of the characters by their like real names. It makes me happy. <laughs> oh, oh, thanks. <laughs> well, uh, I, you know, for me, it's like, you've got to know. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, all these teams are like families and, and some of them have some broken dynamics and they're messy, but I feel like that's really important. I love that about the X-Men when I was a kid and I was reading, you know, Claremont X-Men through the eighties and nineties it was, you know, Logan and Aurora and Kurt, like, and, and, and Peter and Kitty. And like, those were the characters, the code names were like a thing they would remind you of. And you knew who they were, of course, but it was those interpersonal relationships that made them valuable. It's funny you mentioned that too, because one of the things I got early on, 
my editor would actually tell me that I was using the first names too much, that if they were on superhero adventures, that they should be using their code names as much as possible. And I was like, uh, yeah, okay, I guess. And I would always just sort of push that thing. And he would always come back and redline stuff and, and change some of those to code names. And I was like, I get why you're doing that, but I'll just keep doing it my way and push it that line as far as I can, because that that's valuable to me. Like that, these characters their relationships and interrelationships is why we keep reading. You know, I love writing action and I love big, crazy, epic fight scenes, but it has no meaning if there's no emotional content. And the emotion is, is these characters, what they feel and how they feel about each other. We've given Wanda a lot of love on our podcast. Uh, we do trial episodes every once in a while. And we did a two and a half hour trial of Scarlet Witch for, oh, all, wow. of her, for all of her crimes. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the big things we, we point out, we have some pretty serious and tender discussions about these characters we love, is under the hands of male writers, it almost comes across as the hysterical woman being driven mad over and over again. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and I think you see that trope coming up a lot, you yeah. know what I mean, with a bunch of these characters. But I think and, you, I think you yeah. set up some work with Wanda that James Robinson and uh, and Jonathan Hickman and and most recently Leah Williams have been able to pick up on and and they've done some really incredible uh, redemptive work. Uh, we had we had Leah on the podcast a few months ago and uh, she sets up what ended up happening in Trial of Magneto, which is right. a very very redemptive, beautiful arc for the Scarlet Witch. Uh, tell us about your work with Rogue, who is Heather's favorite. <laughs> awesome. Rogue's amazing. Uh, yeah, Anne Marie's the best. Uh, I I wanted her to be right from the get go. My intent was to have her be leader of the Uncanny Avengers because she's the character you wouldn't expect, right? That with Janet Van Dyne on the team, it seemed natural that she would step into that chairperson role. But but that Rogue was the choice that I wanted because to me that felt like cool growth. You know, in the same way like Wolverine becoming the teacher at the school. In, in Wolverine and the X-Men that at first blush, you're like, Jason, what are you doing, man? Like, this is so weird. And it's like, no, that's good. You need to show these characters growing and changing and becoming more than what they were before. And, and that you don't feel like they're, again, stuck in these ruts of behavior that we're constantly dragging them back into. And so for me, Rogue finding the leadership role was really, really important. And that she could see that strength in herself and have the support of everyone else on the team, you know, of course they're going to push up against it because that's where the drama and the friction comes from. And she has stuff to learn, but that she was going to learn to be a better leader and that being a, a good leader meant letting everyone be involved, feeling confident in what you can and cannot control. And there's a little subplot that we do with, with the character of Shocker, which is really weird in Uncanny Avengers, where he ends up helping them in the midst of um, sort of the Secret Empire crossover stuff to fight off these crazy dark monsters or whatever. And then later on when he's on trial, she shows up for the trial and basically does like a character um, witness kind of thing yeah, and says yeah. he has value. And if we give him a chance, maybe he can be more than what he was before. And that's in some ways her also, it's, it, she's talking about herself. She's talking about him. She's talking about that. All of us deserve a chance to, to do more. And if we constantly throw the book at people for their mistakes, you know, then, then they'll never have a chance to grow essentially. And so, you know, I really, really like Rogue. We had some fun doing a, a sort of a relationship with her and the Human Torch. And that was a funny thing with Johnny where um, when, when um, 
uh, Jerry Duggan took over Uncanny Avengers and he relaunched the book. They did a time jump on the start of the book. And, and basically Johnny is on the team because the Fantastic Four is broken up at that point. And he just mentions in passing to Rogue something about like, I can't remember the exact line. It's basically like, are you mad at me just because that date went bad or something like this? And, and it was meant to be like a little joke, not of, oh, maybe they had a little, a little relationship fling in the time gap. And then I was like, that's fun. I want to play with that. I'm going to take that little piece and I'm just going to hunker down on it. And Johnny's going to be all pining. And we're used to him being super confident and his flirtiness here. I liked having him in this role where he was sort of on his back feet and trying to figure out how to, how to kind of win her favor. And she was the one sort of pushing back like, Hey, this is a real bad idea and all this kind of stuff. Johnny storm sleeps with everyone. (laughs) I know, but, but I also wanted to show how he could be, really attractive like you could look and go this guy's confidence is kind of fun or he's you know whatever when there's when they're sleeping over in the avengers mansion and it's all trashed and then he basically comes into her room and she's like what are you doing and he's all doing the oh am i doing something wrong should i leave kind of thing like that's the kind of fun stuff i like those bits one of the things i love about claremont writing was you know he could get really fun and flirty that that just because you've got two or three pages about characters being swoony and romantic, that's not a waste of page space. That's valuable real estate being spent on character development that you remember. You know what I mean? So like fun things like um, when, when Graviton shows up in this issue of Uncanny Avengers, uh, Quicksilver runs over to Synapse and basically just does a whirlwind around her and puts her costume on. And she's like, did you just, and he's like, we don't have, time to talk about this we got to go you know like they're they're dating and cute and whatever and it's like it's fun it's fun flirty kind of stuff that to me feels like a throwback to some of those things i liked about those classic x-men issues and that family dynamic and relationship dynamic of this is cute and playful and 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 winky naughty kind of joyful stuff you know? i don't know if a lot of readers or x fans realize what intense character development rogue went through all three incarnations oh. of uncanny avengers she grew yeah. so yeah. much as a character after the death of charles xavier absolutely and everything they went through uh almost some of my favorite versions of her are in those stories uh let's talk about your most profound x work uh, specifically which is the character of Psylocke. And let, yeah. me set, let me set this up briefly because for some of our newer listeners, this is a character slightly less familiar. So Betsy Braddock is Psylocke. She's introduced in the Captain Britain series. She's kind of British no, uh, royalty in some ways. <laughs> Purple hair, telepath. In uh, 1990-ish, she gets transplanted. Her brain basically gets put into the body of a psychic assassin who's an the Asian ninja warrior. The, yeah, the team passed through the Siege Perilous. Yes. This creepy kind of doorway thing. And of. so basically we have the brain of a British woman occupying <laughs> the body of an Asian woman. And she stays there for 30 years. <laughs> and there's a lot yeah, of Yeah, it was supposed to be one storyline originally. According to Claremont in later interviews, it was supposed to be one storyline and then they were going to switch it back. Um, and so and we had they they just stuck with it. We had the other character whose name is Canon, uh, trapped in the other body, come back for revenge a few times, and a few stories are told, and then she dies. 
but uh, Jim told a story with Psylocke uh, in uh, in the mystery in Madripoor, Hunt for Wolverine story that revolutionized the character and and set her up in new directions. Uh, pitch your Psylocke story to us, Jim. <laughs> so I'll tell you the origins of the story, which are kind of weirdly mundane and yet kind of that's the fun part. So, um, you know, Charles Soule is a good friend of mine and he was doing the Hunt for Wolverine. He had done the the death of Wolverine and then he was doing the the resurrection thing they were doing in the Hunt for Wolverine. And they were going to do a series of mini series that were going to tie into it. And he asked me if I'd be interested in doing one. And the the core pitch idea was get a bunch of X-Men together who had ties to to Logan and they're going to try and track down clues of his disappearance, you know, where he might be now based on evidence that was starting to come out that he may have returned. And so I think I pitched them, hey, Madripoor, let's do that. And then I just started gathering all these X-Men characters who had the closest ties. And I realized, oh, I could literally put together a team of just women who have all, when I say had relationships with Wolverine, I don't even mean romantic relationships, like just close ties or respect or all those kinds of things. And how many of those characters could I, those dynamics could we do? And if we had five of them and we have five issues or whatever, you know, we could do one narrator per issue and all kinds of different things like that. And um, the mandate came back from Marvel and they said, each one of these miniseries should have something absolutely mind blowing happen in it, like something crazy so that people can't stop talking about it. And I was like, oh, well, that sounds great. <laughs> like, it's easy to say that it's a whole other thing to do it. And so you're brainstorming all these ideas like, well, I mean, it can't be a Wolverine revelation because that's going to be in the main sort of issues. So it has to be something related to these characters. And so I just sort of did a wish list of, what have I always wanted to see or what would be really friggin' cool or how could we put a, a, a mark down on one of these characters? And hilariously, I actually pitched to Charles and I said, I mean, we could finally get, you know, Betsy out of that damn ninja body, which is like the most awkward, stupid thing. And he just laughed and he goes, yeah, they'll never let you do that. And I was like, yeah, I know. And, and I didn't even think it was going to be the one that was going to go all the way. And then what happened was I was talking to my editor and we were going back and forth and I threw a couple other ideas into the pot. And I don't want to say what some of them are because someday I hope to use some of them, but uh, they didn't like any of them. They weren't down for any of them. And I was just sort of floundering on the phone and I went, oh, we could uh, undo the Betsy Braddock thing. We could, you know, fix that weird awkwardness. And the editor laughed and was like, yeah, I don't think we're going to be able to do that. And then from what I've heard at the summit meeting they were having, everyone was throwing ideas around. And all of a sudden he just goes, well, Zub had this crazy idea about doing the thing. And that was the one that everyone said, yeah, do it. And so they came back to me and it went from, there's no way you can do this to that's the one you have to do. And so then I sort of backfilled and built that whole story around. We're going to get, we're going to take, Quanon, like the the Japanese character, and we're going to separate her from Betsy Braddock, and Betsy's going to return to her British body, and and make that the new normal on that character who'd been in this same way for like you said thirty years, and it had always been this awkward kind of thing where people love that character and they love that design, but you've got entire generations of readers who assume she's a a Japanese character because they they don't really know her full history or the the awkwardness of it and how it all sort of fits together. So how could I sort of please everyone? I said, well, so my pitch was, look, rather than us minusing, rather than us taking away a character, let's make two characters. Let's have two vibrant, fully formed characters by the end of this thing. Um, 
that that Betsy will be a valid character and Quanon will be a valid character and that they're both going to have future adventures and can do cool stuff. You know what I mean? And so that was sort of where I ended up with that story and then tying it into, I mean, Claremont's so known for his like mindscape kind of combat and crazy astral projections and, and, you know, all these funky stories that are all about digging into characters' psyches. And so I just tried to channel as much of those things and put those, that kind of caper feel into the story and pay off this idea that this old character from, from the Marvel Comics Presents Wolverine story, this character, Sapphire Sticks, who'd barely been used. I think she was in like six issues or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That she's this psychic vampire and that she had fed on Logan way back in the day. And then we were going to be able to encounter his ghost because she'd kept the portion of him inside of her. And that she was going to end up being the tool that we would pivot the whole kind of transformation on. And, and her power and her evil was sort of going to become the fulcrum for us to be able to tilt this thing. And I pitched it half thinking they were going to come back and say, no, this is insane or this won't work. But when you look at how crazy the X-Men history is and all the things they've done, it's not that out of whack, actually. It's, <laughs> it's pretty much par for the course when it comes to psychic body transfer, swap, molecular, whatever you want to call it. And so we busted it out and managed to actually keep it a secret, I think, right up until maybe a week before release. And then preview pages started to, to flutter out and, and the rumor mill started to go. And, and a bunch of people messaged me and were like, you didn't, you didn't actually touch that with a 10 foot pole, did you? I was like, yes, I did. Not only <laughs> did I touch it, I totally did it. Cause that was sort of one of those things that I think a bunch of other people had talked about or wanted to do stuff with, but didn't want to touch that third rail of, of fandom with it. And I just sort of went for the gusto. And the fact that I wasn't a regular X-Men writer, I think in some ways insulated me a little bit that uh, the fandom didn't know how to take it. They were just like, what the hell's this? And, and some people thought it was going to be a temporary thing. And then, of course, Betsy became Captain Britain and Quanon's, you know, basically Psylocke like now. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they get to do their own. And that was my suggestion that, that then because of the Psylocke, aspect of the ninjutsu and all that and that that was so tied into that visual that Quanon should be Psylocke that was one of the things that I said coming forward that we needed a new um code name for Betsy, for Betsy I yeah. wasn't the one who decided like who came up with her becoming Captain Britain that was all the ex office after the fact but I I said in my original thing that Quanon could take the name Psylocke and then we would carry it on reading as a fan it was so crazy and so fun and i was like oh my god they actually undid it like it was yeah. uh you almost wondered if it was something you were waiting for some other reveal but oh totally uh, you put those characters in a whole new direction and frankly long conversations about unintentional cultural appropriation and what they've been exploring between betsy and canon ever since yeah. uh you know you occupied my body and had relationships <laughs> right it's, and uh, only and only in superhero comics do you have these kinds of insano <laughs> soap operatic things but that but they end up becoming really powerful bits of you know uh drama when when they're used properly i adore your use of obscure characters as well thank you uh, you, you talked about shocker before <laughs> yeah uh, in, in you mentioned he's not obscure he's stick. awesome dude's got a costume like a mattress quilt come on that guy's the best do you want to know something crazy? I uh, when I was in my early twenties, which is a long time ago now, I wrote a, a fan fiction series in college that pitted Marvel supervillains 
in a survivor competition. Like they're on an island voting each other out. Yes. And I had I had fans decide who would be voted out every episode. So I would write the next episode based on, you know, whoever got the majority of the vote is who was the next out. And right. I did I did five seasons of it. And this is what ended up getting in me into the Marvel handbooks, which is uh, ironic. But Shocker won my first season of yes. uh, Survivor Masters of Evil, it was called. <laughs> so That's I have, awesome. I have a lot of fondness for that character. You uh, you used in uh, in Mystery of Magic War, you used the Femme Fatales, which is yes. a, a deep dig into <laughs> mutant characters. Yeah. So great. And you gave them more life than they'd ever had before, frankly. Oh, thanks. I really uh, appreciate that. Yeah, that was fun to, again, I what I wanted was I wanted to take characters who... I like taking characters who exist in the Marvel universe and and sort of saying, okay, we haven't seen them in however long. What are they doing now? And, you know, I think one of the best things we can do is sort of play them straight. Like rather than, there's this thing where some people, and I'm not going to point any particular fingers, they will take a character and they will say, aren't they so stupid? Aren't they so kooky? Aren't they so wacky bad? And it's like, kind of screw you. Like, like, that's not the point. You know what I mean? Like this is a fantastic four annual that we're going to be reviewing here is kooky as all get out. And it's very much of its time and it's silly. And there's some spots where I'm laughing, but I would never point at that and say like, ah, oh, Stan Lee's dumb or, you know, like whatever. Sure, it's, that's sure. not the point, right? Like you're trying to create something that's valid. Like, and the, the coolest thing you can do is take a character Living Lightning, for example, a character that everyone laughed at and thought was a fool. Sure. And and Al Ewing was bound and determined to make that character awesome in Avengers No Surrender and sold us at the table. We did the actual story breakdown in person at the Marvel office and like said, we're going to make this this character that everyone, no one remembers or those that do probably think he's a loser and we're going to make him the most important character in the story. Because the entire point of Avengers No Surrender was about legacy. And so his point of view was, what if your legacy is crap and can you change the trajectory of it? You know what I mean? And so well, and, to me... And, and an example of getting to see a queer character... Absolutely. Uh, be absolutely. The, the person that saves the day, which is so rare. Yeah. And it does not surprise you that Al was the person championing that, right? Oh, and yeah. Al has always been the person that champions that stuff and plays it straight and plays it strong and makes it good, right? And that, that says, rather than these things being foolish or, or snark-worthy, let's pull that out and and polish that to a mirror sheen you know what i mean and so i take that as a as a as a watchword for me where i sort of look and go okay whatever that character is can we make that villain that seems so kooky and stupid can we make them scary can we make them fascinating can we make them deeper than they've ever been or or the create the feeling that i got as a kid because i took this stuff all seriously i thought it was you know i didn't think of the character of whirlwind as an idiot i'm like that guy he's a tornado with blades he would tear <laughs> you apart that guy's scary you know we get he, to see him in this uh this fantastic four issue today too. that's right well and another character that's in this fantastic four issue there's a character called the cobra mm-hmm. who's just a ludicrous character who can just sort of twist his body into all these weird shapes and stuff because the very first issue of amazing spider-man that i bought had him on the cover i think it's amazing spider-man 231 or 232 and he's like wrapped around spider-man and like choking him out kind of thing i was like that guy's scary oh my god (laughs) like i thought he was a badass villain because the whatever villains you see in those early formative issues they must be awesome like yeah they make the first comics right you know and and one of the first fantastic four issues i read was a a reprint and there's this 
Jack Kirby designed a robot called Torgo. And he's like, he's just a throwaway character. I thought Torgo was amazing because the way Jack Kirby drew him and, and the amount of power he put into those poses, I thought, wow, that guy's unstoppable. Like if you'd have asked me as a kid who was more powerful, the Juggernaut or Torgo, I probably would have said I didn't know because, you know, they'd have to fight in an issue because I had no context for the stuff, right? It was just, these characters are cool. So how can I take these characters, whether it's the femme fatale or anyone else, and sort of look and go, okay, so Viper's there, she's going to hire people, she's going to want people who are not just, you know, people with guns, she's going to want someone with superpowers. So you just sort of go down this list of like, femme fatale kind of characters. And when you look up femme fatales, you find the team of the femme fatales, and you're like, oh, wait, there's a whole team called the Femme Fatales. What if I actually <laughs> use them? And so we just sort of literally took them and, and you know, refurbished them and put them in the in the book. I love the I love the uh, reverence that you have for Marvel history. Now, uh, Torgo has been brought back uh, in Colin Bunn's Drax series. Yes, yes, ago. he has. I was <laughs> super jealous. I actually bought Scott Hepburn, the artist of Drax, is a friend of mine. And I bought a Torgo page from him specifically because Torgo was on there. Yeah. I'm always uh, I'm always telling my kids any character is great under the right storyteller. And proof That's of right. that is another Canadian, Ryan North, made Squirrel Girl my favorite character right? in the last 20 years. And she was a running gag, right, for the yeah, longest yeah. time. And then it's just, okay, what's the tilt? What's the play on this character to make them really interesting, right? Like, and, and Or with a villain or with whoever. One of the projects I've got coming in 2022 uh that's now this year jesus it's only a few days into the year i was like <laughs> making it sound like we're still in 2021 is is you know taking a a villainous character that has been played for gags a lot and sort of taking a bit of a tilt and going oh there's more pathos and darkness here what can we really do to to delve deeper into this as a concept you know so so for those that are interested, uh, Jim has a long comic book history. There's characters all over the place, but you can find other lesser known X characters in some of his works. Dr. Nemesis and Brew are in the Age yes. of Wakanda. Dust is in Champions. We get to see Gold Balls uh, shot in a school shooting in his oh Champion series as well. Uh, so, so, so much amazing, incredible work and so much reverence for the uh, the playing field that you're working with. Thanks. Characters. It means a lot to me. Like to me, one of the things I love when I was collecting in the eighties was that you would see those stupid little asterisks in the caption box that would tell you this was referencing another issue that the next time you saw a villain, they would reference where they were if they got lost in the swamp and they found their way out or cast into another dimension and they found their way out. Like that stuff always, it was fascinating to me that you could trace a character, particularly villains across multiple series, sometimes multiple years. Um, you know, it, it's uh, uh, it's just a different kind of a, a storytelling medium than just your straight serialized sort of storytelling. The continuity is what makes the creative fabric of the Marvel Universe so special or, or any, you know, kind of connected universe. And so to me, I try to honor that where I want people to treat the stuff that I make the same way I treat their stuff, that it's all in play. You know what I mean? That you did it, therefore it happened. Now I'll reference it. And if I need to tilt... I'll do the tilt in my story rather than it being like pretending your thing never happened, which I think is uncool. Yeah. And know? I think, I think it's okay to ignore continuity that you're not comfortable with as long yeah, as it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't contradict mean what you're doing now. Ca right? Characters don't show up and then vomit out an entire, their history to you, but the most relevant or current parts of the stuff that's going to usually show up or whatever, but yeah. where applicable, you know, I think it's important. So, so when rogue, um, 
takes the power of Graviton in that issue of Uncanny Avengers, we see flashbacks of almost every major appearance he's ever had in the Avengers. And some of that stuff I dug up, I hadn't read those stories, but I wanted to reference them because I thought they were interesting. And some readers were like, holy crap, deep cut, you know, and it's like, good. That's the whole point of the thing, right? I love when you make you, I love when you make the reader do their homework. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Well, the thing for me is you should be able to read it and enjoy it on a surface level of, I know what the drama is and I know what these characters' motivations are. But if you know the character's deeper history, you will hopefully appreciate that I did my homework. I guess that's kind of the way I look at it. Yeah. So Jim, thank you, thank you for telling us the stories behind the stories. Uh, no what a what a brilliant mind you have! I'm a huge fan of yours. I can't wait to see what you have. Thanks. And frankly, after after talking to you today, I want to go back and read your work at other companies. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, uh, man. And and see what you've done there. Um, with that, let's transition into our uh, issue review for today, which is Fantastic Four Annual Number Three, which is almost a weird thing to cover on an X Men podcast, except it's one of the very first appearances of the X Men. Uh, we recently reviewed an issue of the X-Men in which the Puppet Master and the Mad Thinker come over. Uh, and we're going to do an issue review later where the X-Men fight the Puppet Master and the Mad Thinker in an issue of the Fantastic Four. But in this issue, we have the wedding of, uh, of Reed Richards and Susan Storm, who are Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Girl. They have been married now. Uh, in Marvel time, it's like 15 years. But in, in our world, it's been like 60. <laughs> it's been a long time. Now, you want to consider what a big deal this was for readers at the time. Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, and the other early creators had seeded stories all over the Marvel Universe. They're telling individual tales about the Hulk and Giant Man and Doctor Strange and the Fantastic Four and the X-Men and Daredevil and Spider-Man and Iron Man and Thor. I think I covered most of them, but there's probably a few more. And as they're doing this, they're just cranking out new villains every month. They're creating new villains with new powers and new backstories and new origins. And in this issue of the Fantastic Four, we get to see an insane gathering of all of these characters around the Marvel Universe. It was a really big deal at the time. It's almost like the Secret Wars uh, for those fans in the 80s. Now, in, a, in, today's, in today's readership, we're used to seeing characters cross over with each other. But at the time, I can't imagine how readers reacted. You open this cover for Fantastic Four Annual Number 3. And there are something like 50 characters crammed in. Now, there's a 24-page story and then several reprints afterward uh, of early Fantastic Four issues, which people had a hard time getting a hold of. And we're not going to read or review the reprints, just the main story. But on the cover, in the center, there's a giant word bubble that says, Sensational, the wedding of Sue and Reed, featuring... And here's Stan Lee's love of... of, uh, uh, What's it called when you use... Alliteration. He says, the world's most colossal collection of costume characters crazily cavorting and capering in continual combat. This is the big one, which is incredible. And then there's nearly 50 characters uh, in battle with each other, including members of the the Avengers, including Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, as well as the original X-Men. Now, for the two of you looking at this issue cover... Uh, it's chaos. What did uh, what were some of your initial thoughts as you as you viewed this? Like, holy shit! <laughs> well, I think it's funny that there are a few characters very prominently displayed that you don't actually see in this issue. <laughs> so true. Like, Namor and Hulk are huge comparatively and spoiler alert you don't see either of them in this issue and they're not spider-man's not in the issue yeah uh spider-man's in it briefly oh he is that's right that's right sorry no no you're okay 
Is the Red Skull in this issue? I don't believe so. Scarlet Witch not. (laughs) But she's on the cover. (laughs) You can tell they did the cover probably first, and then they just like tried to cram it all in, or 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 they did the cover last and they weren't actually keeping track of who they used in the issue. It's wild. My single favorite image on the cover, if you can pick it out on the top left, is Medusa stretching her hair across the panel to grab <laughs> Iron Man's leg, which is amazing. Yes. <laughs> Did you guys have any favorite moments from this crazy battle? Uh, just from the cover? Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, the two-gun kid is up in the upper left, and he's <laughs> definitely not in this thing. I don't know what the hell's going on. So probably my favorite uh, on this cover is that the Black Knight, who actually is in the comic and does quite a bit, all things considered, he's hidden partially behind the caption in the middle. But characters who didn't do anything in the issue, they get nice, big, prominent places. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a feast for the eyes, man. And like <laughs> Crazy Kirby, uh, not at his finest necessarily, because there's a lot going on. The thing stands out most prominently for me. Uh, and he's one of my all-time favorite characters, of course. He's, he's uh, absolutely uh, delightful. Um, as we open this issue... Uh, it says the fabulous FF hold a long awaiting wedding only to find Bedlam at the Baxter building. And we get this incredible opening page of <laughs> Dr. Doom angrily reading a newspaper. He's sitting on his <laughs> throne in Latveria. He reads about his arch nemesis marrying uh, Susan Storm and he is pissed. He tears the paper to shreds and he vows to get his revenge in the most Shakespearean way. Uh, Jim, are you a Dr. Doom fan? Of course. How could you not be? He's like the... <laughs> The most amazing. And he chews up so much scenery in this issue. And just in general, in those old comics, he's he's fascinating because he's so petty and dramatic, like you were saying, Shakespearean in his kind of countenance here. Um, I, I love that his schemes are so random because now we have decades worth of stories where you have a sort of a relative power level of characters and you know, okay, this is the scope of that character's capabilities. But in the early stories, man, they could do anything. Like they would just give them technology and powers and abilities and riches, just whatever would drive the plot. And it's awesome. Like it's so freeing, I think in some ways that that Stan and Jack's kind of imagination can run wild with this stuff. It's so fun. Uh, He full on throws a tantrum. He rips the paper up. He stomps off his throne, kicks open the door. And he just so happens to have a high frequency emotion charger behind the door. Uh, Heather, what does the high frequency emotion charger do? Um, It's in his hands. It can fan the flames of hatred in the heart of every evil menace in existence. (laughs) Which is... He just sends out little psychic nuggets to all of the bad guys around the planet and is like, hey, you're really pissed off at the Fantastic Four too. Maybe you should go attack them. It's basically like a bizarre little mind control device. It's uh, it's a little like uh, there's another Fantastic Four villain called the Psycho Man who can amp up your emotions. It's almost like that type of thing. Uh, (laughs) uh, Like on a global level and instantly. It just... Maybe it taps into Cerebro somehow. Heather, do you wish you had a high-frequency emotion charger in your home? No. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of work and a lot of responsibility. I feel, like, got I feel like every time I offer you a piece of 60s technology from the comic books, you just shut it down wholesale. You don't want any of it. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
because you usually offer me like the villain stuff and it's always stuff that like goes wrong. Why would I want that? <laughs> as we uh, as we get onto page three, we get to see some crazy guest stars and I won't have time to delve into all of these uh, specifically just because we don't have time on the podcast, but there's characters with deep cuts into Marvel history, even back into the 1950s. We see, uh, we see Hetty Wolf and Patsy Walker, who later becomes Hellcat, who had a long running uh, kind of girly, model-y, kind of Barbie kind of book back in the 40s and 50s. Um, we get reference to Irving Forbush again and to Millie the model. And then we see people just kind of starting to come up on uh, attacking the place. Now, the puppet Can master- I make one quick little oh, comment? Oh, yeah, yeah, here? please. Uh, I love Irving Forbush as a stupid Marvel thing. And I've used a bunch of Irving Forbush references in my writing and I try and slip him into stuff wherever I can. The latest version of that is in issue five Avengers tech on they're in um, Osaka in Japan. And they are these giant neon signs and stuff. And one of them is for Forbush beer, which is uh, a beer brand that I came up with in Thunderbolts. If you look in Thunderbolts number six, uh, they're getting beer out of the fridge. It's four bush band beer. And that's, I want to make that a thing where I just keep using it in different comics now. So I think more four bush. I think that's so great. We, we, uh, we only talk about him cause he always appears in the credits. They're like manicures in this issue done by Irving four bush. Like yes. it's just random, <laughs> random mentions of him all the time. I love that stuff. <laughs> uh, so we see the puppet master who we talked about in a recent episode. Uh, he has brought a guest under his control who has been equipped with uh, a poison that will kill someone immediately. But uh, Nick Fury and his Howling Commandos are there to uh, to stop him on his way into the building. And we'll just note really quickly, uh, Gabe Jones, who is one of the Howling Commandos, is the only Black character in this entire book. And there's one Asian character and the rest are all white people. <laughs> so we're just gonna, we're going to note that right away. Welcome to the 1960s. Uh, the, uh, the Puppet Master is one of my all-time favorites. And another favorite is uh, Red Ghost, who is uh, a man named Ivan Kragoff who experimented on a group of apes and gave them superpowers. So he has a team called called the super apes, which is maybe my favorite thing in all of Marvel. (laughs) He he is there to attack as well. Uh, Right as professor X is arriving and, uh, and the fucking mole man is, is bringing a giant drill through the ground with his race of subterranean moloids all at the same time. Like this is literally all like one page, you guys. There's there's so much going on. It's just chaos. No, it's, we're page five of the story and it's so crazy the number of characters that have already shown up in this thing. It's absolutely <laughs> nutso. It is such a clusterfuck. <laughs> it is crazy. Can I, I got to read this one line. So the Beast and the X-Men, like the X-Men show up and they fight off the Mole Men there and I get, and the Moloids. But my favorite line, I actually laughed out loud as I was reading it. Hank uh, McCoy says, faster all, mere loquaciousness cannot vanquish an adversary. And I was just like, that is the most Stan Lee, like just overbearing dialogue. I love it. And Beast's feet are, of course, front and center, out in the middle. Although they only have four toes here. Did you notice <laughs> his feet only have four toes in this image? Uh, Heather, walk us through this next part of the battle and just the crazy chaos that ensues. I will do my best. <laughs> so Mole Man and his ilk are attacking the thing and Xavier's there and he's like, okay, X-Men come in here. 
And so there, the X-Men come in to fight the Mole Man and his people. And um, is it Beast who says, far be it from me to interfere, lovely lady? I think so. Because <laughs> Jean says, I'll keep him off balance te- telekinetically while we form a battle plan. And Beast says, far be it from me to interfere, lovely lady. And it's like, Hank. I mean, <laughs> lovely lady's better than female. I mean, yes, but also it didn't need to be included at all. (laughs) And so the X-Men are defeating them, send them all back underground. And to keep them underground, the Iceman puts a solid mass of ice that will seal the opening and push them steadily down as it keeps melting. (laughs) <laughs> which is hilarious to me because I feel like it would be the opposite because as the ice melts and gets smaller, I feel like it would be easier to like push it out. But I don't know. <laughs> but but first Angel just fucking stomps on their heads. He literally just honk <laughs> as they're going down in the hole. <laughs> it's like a cartoon whenever, you know, you're trying to pack a bag or anything like that. You just stomp on it until it closes. <laughs> <laughs> and so thing is like hey i have to go tell reed what's happening and then here's alicia crying for help in the next room and goes in where he is greeted by a trained baboon with a high voltage shock ray that shocks the thing and reed comes in and he grabs an orangutan i think it is and Sue and Alicia are sitting there in a little bubble of shield, keeping the apes at bay. And um, Johnny comes in and tries to burn the red ghost, but he doesn't have a solid body. Apparently, he's not corporeal. He can corporeal. go intangible. He can go intangible. <laughs> That's his power. Ah, I see that. That makes sense why he's called a ghost. I don't understand where the monkeys come in, but that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) And so they're all doing that. And then let's see. And a mysterious hum from the doorway. A strange unearthly force envelops the red ghost and his inhuman slaves and sends them off into the space-time continuum into a totally alien dimension. And lo and behold, here comes Doctor Strange. Uh, he banished them to a distant netherworld. I'll just note really quickly, the, the super apes' names, they're Russian. Their names are, are Piotr, uh, Igor, and Miklo. And they each have a different <laughs> power set. Yes. Sure. <laughs> You're not impressed, sure. Heather. <laughs> I just don't understand how it plays in with the Red Ghost, but it's okay. <laughs> it's Red Ghost and super apes. That's all that matters. Uh, banishing them to a foreign, banishing them to a foreign dimension seemed a little harsh. Uh, Jim, tell us some of your thoughts on these last few pages of battles. Um, I mean, it just gets so chaotic. I, one of the things that seems to happen throughout the story is Stan wants to have tons of characters appear or Stan and Jack. So they just throw characters into it, but they also know they don't have a deep page count. So they get rid of them almost as quickly as they introduce them. They'll have them in for four or five panels and then just kind of just, just, instantly something amazing and coincidental will happen and and you know so dr strange shows up here and just banishes all these guys to 
quote, a totally alien dimension. <laughs> or on the next page, you have literally they have the Mandarin, the Black Knight, Kang, uh, the awesome android, Grey Gargoyle, and the Super Scroll on one page. And Thor. <laughs> oh, that, well, yeah, I'm saying villain-wise. And then Thor all kind of clashing over the next couple pages. And then just as quickly as it happens, it ends, you know, so the super scrolls ship gets destroyed and we're off to another opponent. We're off to another set of villains. Like it's just the craziest kind of montage of madness, you know, any of in, in a modern comic, this would have been a mini series all on its own, but here it's like three pages. <laughs> All of these characters have long staying power in the Marvel Universe. Uh, some of the major, major storylines, with the exception of the Black Knight. Uh, this man is named Nathan Garrett. He flies around on a winged horse with his power lance. His only claim to fame basically is that he's the uncle of Dane Whitman, the Avenger, the Black Knight. And when Nathan Garrett, this character, dies, he leaves his horse and his equipment to uh, the man that will later join the Avengers. But all of the rest of these characters have a... a, a pretty strong strength staying power we also see that doctors dr doom's machine reaches across time like kang's in the future and he's still like oh no i need to go attack the fantastic <laughs> as you do um some of some of the fantastic four villains are my favorite of all time i love i love the puppet master i love uh the mad thinker i love the awesome android uh i love me some super scroll uh who is the very we, we've talked about him a few times because we've been reviewing the the comics with the mimic in them the mimic has all of the powers of the original x-men uh, he recently fought the super adaptoid who had all the powers of the Avengers. And here's the super <laughs> scroll who has all the powers of the fantastic four. It's a running gag in the comics back then, but uh, the super scroll is one of my favorites. Uh, Jim, do you have a favorite villain so far out of all these? I mean, Dr. Doom for sure, but anyone else? I mean, the awesome Android is so great. Cause he's just such a weird, amazing design. He's got this block for a head and he's just this gargantuan gray monolith humanoid with purple shorts sorry with blue shorts on and he's he's breaking a light pole i just think the awesome android's amazing i also really like when dan slot brought the awesome android into the she-hulk book yes called him andy and he's like a really good office worker and stuff so he had like a piece a of chalk around his neck yeah. and he just wrote messages to people yeah he was amazing so good so good <laughs> heather uh any of these villains stand out as someone you'd like oh he i'd like to learn more about this one um, I mean, the Puppet Master is interesting. Um, for sheer absurdity, I kind of dig the Mole Man. Kind of <laughs> reminds me a little bit of um, the end of The Incredibles. Um, oh, big time. That that character is yeah. a, definitely a reference to the Mole Man. Oh, yeah. And so, so my little Disney heart is a little bit happy about that. Um, and also that it's just absurd but we get to yeah, see the we get to see the mole man fight the x-men in number 34 so we'll be reviewing that on our podcast relatively soon um let's talk a little bit quickly about the x-men's battle sequence here we get to see more of them in a minute but if you're a fantastic four fan and you've never met the x-men and you get to see these characters run in you love the human torch but here's an ice man right uh you you get to see them all using their powers briefly the beast with his big words gene with her telekinesis uh cyclops can shoot fucking lasers out of his eyes and we've got a man with wings uh what are your thoughts as a fan back then are, are you like oh i want to know more about these characters oh plus there's a guy in a wheelchair leading them which is kind of amazing i, I think, I think it's that, a really it, yeah sorry go ahead 
Uh, I was just going to say, I think it's really funny that you just listed the beast's powers as words. That, <laughs> that brought me great joy. <laughs> and also four toes. <laughs> yes. Uh, Jim, what were you going to say? I mean, you can imagine that fans just freaking out. And if they're reading the Marvel comics, they feel like they're getting this, you know, kind of sugar rush of all their favorites all in one place. And if they're not, it sort of, it does entice you to want to know more about this, this interconnected New York City that where anything seems to happen and so many villains and heroes are all coexisting, you know? So I I can't imagine being a kid and reading this. must have just been freaking out. It's, uh, it's really intense, but it's also really fast, right? In oh, a modern sure. day book, I think we'd get bigger panels and bigger pages and lots more action, but it's just insane with its chaos. Uh, on on uh, page 10 or 11, excuse me, we get to see uh, Sue falling into Reed's arm. She's in her wedding dress. And even though she's like the most powerful member, she's like, oh, Reed, what are we going to do with our wedding? And uh, we get to see Daredevil in his in his uh, uh, civilian identity as Matt Murdock. He's, he's a blind character, probably my all-time favorite Marvel character, if I'm honest, uh, with, his, with his supporting cast, Karen Page and Foggy Nelson. And he rushes outside to find Hydra, uh, the criminal forces attacking with a massive weapon on the back of their truck. And uh, Daredevil gets a nice bit of action here as he defeats the agents of Hydra. Uh, Jim, because you're a Cobra fan, tell us about the next battle with Captain America. <laughs> First of all, I got to admit, I don't think I had ever I realized that Daredevil fighting Hydra is something I wanted to see, but I'm 100% okay with all of that. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's totally wicked. Uh, so on the next set of pages, you've got Iron Man and Captain America fighting the Cobra. <laughs> so the Cobra is like winding his way around um, Captain America. And then just wandering around the corner is the Executioner. <laughs> that panel makes me laugh because it just seems like, you know, boom, da dum going on a walk today. <laughs> oh, there's the Executioner. And so the Executioner, the Enchantress come peeling around the corner and Cap just tosses Cobra into him. It's just this wild pitch battle. And as if that wasn't enough, we're going to have Mr. Hyde suddenly appears out of nowhere, freaks out, Hawkeye pins him to a wall, and then a safe gets dropped from, like, it's just this ab from, from, from a high floor or something. And then there goes Spider-Man. Although I have to admit, the Spider-Man panel makes me laugh so much because it's clearly traced off from a pose from the 60s cartoon. That's like a, or like one of the Ditko poses like that. I don't know if Kirby was on a tight deadline or something, but that is not a Kirby drawn Spider-Man. That is most definitely a, a, a grab from a Ditko issue right there. Spider-Man seems like an afterthought. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and let's totally just, insane. let's just note for our listeners. We won't spend a lot of, uh, if there was only a few villains, I'd give you a deep dive on all of them, but Cobra <laughs> is not a snake man. He's just a normal guy, <laughs> but his arms and legs can like, are a little slithery they don't grow he can just wrap them around you and choke he's always like bear hugging people like yeah choking them out (laughs) and then he can like slither down the road because his skin's a little slippery like he's a he's a bizarre villain (laughs) he's amazing (laughs) so Uh, good mr hyde is another long-term favorite uh and heather i think you should cosplay as the enchantress particularly with those socks those long i was actually just thinking that (laughs) that the design is amazing. Like, all, is, but you know what's really amazing is the characters all have such distinct um, color palettes. They're instantly recognizable on the page, which is also really nice. 
I'm also super impressed with how individual all the costumes are. You mm-hmm. you realize when you put them all in one place like this, how how uh, how unique each character is in their design and in their um, in their execution, if you will. <laughs> all the supervillains come across one note here, of course. Oh yeah. Um, when we get on to page uh, fifteen, we see. <laughs> we see the uh, Black Knight riding in on his winged horse. Now, ironically, on last week's podcast, we just talked about winged horses because uh, uh, Merlin had created some winged horses. Black Knight's done the same. He created this winged horse himself. He just grafted some wings onto this horse and now he rides it around. As you do. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Heather, your face. (laughs) That's not Uh, how science works. Um, he Welcome is, to the Marvel Universe, kid. Anything's possible. <laughs> He's going after Daredevil, who's trying to stop a doomsday weapon, but Angel flies through the sky to stop him. And meanwhile, Mandarin, who has his 10 power rings, uh, uh, fires at the Angel. Now, for those that have seen the Shang-Chi movie, there's the, the, the 10 rings cult. Uh, I'm not going to get the name quite right, but that's based off of this character, the Mandarin, who has 10 alien rings, each of which have a different superpower. Uh, he's he's uh, uh, one of Iron Man's major villains. Uh, <laughs> and then Iceman, <laughs> Beast saves Angel from falling, and then Iceman zooms in and basically gets gangbanged. <laughs> he's, he's tucked on one side of a panel, and Electro and Mandarin and the Unicorn, who we've yes. reviewed our books, and the is is that the melter or the living that's leader? the melter it that's is the melter, the melter. Yeah. and then and then the beetle are all firing him <laughs> at the same time it's uh like poor bobby is just overwhelmed uh but cyclops comes in with an optic glass to save the day uh it's just sheer chaos tell me some of your thoughts on these last couple of pages i like when who's the lightning bolt dude electro electro he says, first we'll destroy Iceman, then the Fantastic Four, then the city. And then we'll speak for yourself. My goal is nothing less than world conquest. <laughs> All right, slow your roll there, man. <laughs> Electro uh, is one of the villains in the new Spider-Man movie uh, that they brought back from the Andrew Garfield films, uh, uh, played by Jamie Foxx. But his costume's a little, a little more ridiculous here. <laughs> it's amazing. All those classic costumes are so over the top. Uh, the Beatle... <laughs> is drawn really thick here. Like he looks massive. And I know in the, like in his other appearances, even in the sixties, he's more kind of gangly with those long fingers. Uh-huh. And here he looks like a bruiser. Like he looks like an absolute brick. It's really weird. You got to write the beetle in your Thunderbolt series. I did. Yeah. I mean, he's changed a lot. Our, uh, our boy Abner Jenkins. Uh, yeah. He's uh, uh, now he's, called well he had, he would keep having different stages of armor so he called himself mock one mock two mock three as he would go up through his different armors over the years uh yeah yeah he's uh he's a classic character i really like abner uh yeah another one of those redemptive kind of arcs where i made him kind of address some of the things he'd done in his past and and stuff like that so he's uh, kurt kurt Busiek's thunderbolts is revolutionary uh and every incarnation that's followed since then including yours is just amazing uh it makes you care about these characters that you didn't care about and and, uh the beetle being among them who cared about the beetle before thunderbolts and now now people love him so much of course uh on page uh on page 18 or 17 we just get to see kind of a free for all (laughs) battle it's just chaos everybody's punching each other there's a big pile up Iron Man goes up against uh, uh, the Mad Thinker and the awesome android. 
Quicksilver runs in and fights the human top, which is such a name that does not stand up well <laughs> in current terminology. Uh, the human top eventually <laughs> becomes Whirlwind, uh, That's right. uh, who Jim has also written. Are you, are you a Whirlwind fan, Jim? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think he's got. I, I really like the bullet head kind of design that they gave him, and the 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 saw blades on his arms. I always thought he was a really cool kind of scary character when I was a kid, and so having him show up in um, you know that Uncanny Avengers issue was a lot of fun. He is your your classic kind of like the in the wrestling match. What's it called? The 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 pre matches where they just have the throw villain. You know, the guy who's going to get his butt kicked to make someone look good. Sure, he's that yeah. guy. Yeah, so World, but, Whirlwind is one of the few mutants in the Marvel Universe that have never had anything to do with the X-Men in any capacity. I can't think of a single appearance. I may be wrong. That's fascinating. I forgot he was a mutant. Because mm -hmm. I, I think because he wears such bulky armor, when I was a kid, I assumed he had like, like, like the technology was doing it or something. Nope. But now that you mention it, it is a mutant power. That's right. Heather, his mutant power is to spin around real fast. <laughs> I figured that was probably what it was. Man, now <laughs> I got a new X-Men pitch. When they do that, when they do the X-Men vote for 2022, they should totally have Whirlwind in the running now. That's amazing. <laughs> I also want to point out that the Beast has five toes on page 17. Prominently displayed there. You only too. see his feet, but he does have five toes. <laughs> That's true. We uh, we go for no prizes here. Maybe on the image where he only has four toes before, Professor X is just messing with people's minds. If you only <laughs> notice he's got four toes, it'll knock you off your balance. <laughs> we also get Unicorn with his horn top back. He's shooting, shooting power beams out of his power horn. He makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and as, as if things were not chaotic enough, we then have Atlantean ships uh, uh, landing with Atuma and his warriors pouring out, ready to attack the surface <laughs> from their undersea civilization. We've got villains from the future, from other countries, from underground, now from underwater. It's just, <laughs> it's just fucking crazy. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, Jim, will you walk us through... Uh, uh, the, the, the next wonderful chaos yes yeah, where the is, where the watcher appears it is so nuts so to to finish off atuma and the atlantean legion which again you think would be an entire comic story on its own they do this i guess you could say deft little pull where when hydra showed up earlier in the issue they were uh they had a truck they were trying to drive towards the wedding with a vortex bomb on the back of this truck and Daredevil uh, basically kicks off all the bad guys. And then he drives the truck off of the docks and lets it go flying and drops, I guess, the Marvel equivalent of a nuke on, <laughs> on the Atlantean Legion. And as Daredevil prophesies, no one is harmed except the vast invasion force of a thunderstruck Atuma all pulled back to the watery depths by the irresistible giant vortex. So uh, it's uh, it's this crazy kind of payoff. And as if that wasn't... Well, and I just want to note quickly, Atuma has one of the best headpieces in Marvel history. He wears like the skull of an undersea creature that looks like a purple bunny <laughs> rabbit. And I love it so much. <laughs> He's awesome. Yeah. And, and so... This is the most you, dramatic coincidence of the year. That's right. It literally says that. <laughs> the most dramatic coincidence of the year occurs that instant. For creating madly towards the waterfront is a speeding truck carrying a deadly cargo. And that's where Daredevil drops the truck on them. You'd think that that would be the climax of this story, dropping a vortex bomb. But no, no, not even close. Out of nowhere, the Watcher appears before Reed Richards in the middle of this fight. 
And uh, Reed basically says, the Watcher, but I thought you were forbidden to interfere with, interfere with other races. The Watcher says, it is so written. And yet, if you will dare venture into the unknown with me, you may find the key to victory. And then they do this just bad shit photo stat page where the Watcher takes uh, Reed Richards. It's a full page blowout into the fourth dimension, as they call it. Uh, and, and the and, Watcher and the Watcher is looking fabulous. He's thick and bald and he's wearing skimpy clothes he's massive he is not the uh i mean his head is large but his body's bigger it's a different kind of proportion than we're used to from the watcher uh when reed asks him where's our destination he says there are no words in your language to describe its location mortal one but suffice it to say that it is the home of the watcher and so that's where they end up in this amazing kirby laboratory full of of kooky kirby tech which is some of my favorite stuff ever uh, and th this is what's so utterly delightfully bizarre. The watcher basically brings him to his home and says, I'm at liberty to explain nothing, to offer nothing. Yet, if you should see something that might help you, I am not permitted to interfere with whatever you may do. So he brought Reed to his lab. He's not supposed to interfere. He's just supposed to watch. He brought Reed to his lab and goes, well, if you see a weapon, and then just lets him grab whatever the hell he wants. So Reed picks up some just Balzac, crazy, amazing piece of Kirby tech. And then uh, the watcher sends him back and he's carrying this device, plugs it into his own forehead. It's a subatronic time displacer capable of transporting living beings back to the immediate past. They'll return to where they were before they attacked with no memory what is, of what has happened since. And so in half of a page, Reed Richards basically vortexes all the bad guys back through time, saves everyone. And by the bottom of the page, everyone's ready for the wedding to start. It is such a crazy climactic thing. Now, it's important quickly to understand who the Watcher is. He, We've seen him, uh, non-comic non readers have seen him recently in the Disney series, What If? He's a giant alien space god with a huge, I don't know if he's a god, he's godlike. But his his goal, he's from a race of beings who just watch uh, things unfold across various planets. He can see into the multiverse. He's forbidden by his like race's code to interfere <laughs> in any way. And in the comics over the years, you'll kind of see him appear at various moments that are consequential. There'll be a battle and suddenly the watchers they're watching, you're like, oh shit, this is a big deal. But in this issue, we see him completely breaking his code. Like, hey, Reed, come with me. And if you see any weapons, here you go. <laughs> are, you a, are you a Watcher fan, Jim? Well, absolutely. The Watcher is just one of those crazy, kooky-ass things that it, it seems like it shouldn't work. But for some reason, it carries a weird gravitas. Because when you know when he shows up, something really, really amazing is going to happen uh and and that it's going to be on a larger grander scale you know what i mean probably my favorite version though of the watcher is actually from the show the venture brothers there's a character called the grand galactic inquisitor and he's oh, a ripoff yeah. of the watcher and my favorite thing is that he appears and all the characters can see him and he constantly screams ignore me as he, as he wants them to carry on whatever they're doing. I could not stop laughing when I saw that because it's such a good take on the Watcher and such a ridiculous thing that this giant headed dude would appear in the sky and you're like, oh, never mind, just, just pretend he's not there while you're carrying on this huge epic battle or whatever you're doing. 
a few years back, Jason Aaron wrote this insane series uh, uh, called Original Sin, where some characters go murder the Watcher because they're just pissed off at him. And then they take his eyes and his eyes are full of like the secrets of the multiverse. And one of the eyes explodes and all of the characters get these memories that they forgot that they had. And it's, yep. it's this insane series. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely nuts. Uh, um, yeah, this this issue is crazy. And uh, Heather, do you want a subatronic time displacer? In your <laughs> um, I'm not sure because it looks like I don't really want to have to connect it to my head. <laughs> Especially seeing how Reed looks after the fact. <laughs> I already, I already have been diagnosed with chronic migraines. I don't need help. <laughs> so you're you're throwing a party and it's not going well, and you just want everyone to go home. So you go in the back bedroom, you attach yourself to the subatronic time displacer, and zap the party never happened. No, see that I just say, "Hey, everyone, go home. <laughs> I'm going to bed." <laughs> And uh, on the final page, we get uh, we get the wedding itself. We get to see some of the X-Men. One page. One page wedding. One we get to page. See, we get to see some of the X-Men tucked into the crowd. Uh, Angel and uh, and Jean Grey. And I think that's Cyclops, I think. Uh, but he's <laughs> behind Johnny. We see uh, Thing blowing his nose with the sound effect honk. Uh, <laughs> Heather, what do you think of Sue's uh, wedding dress? Are you a fan? <laughs> Not immensely, but... It's just a very long peplum top, basically. I mean, it's not terrible. It's just not quite what I would choose. Uh, for 1960s, this is the height of fashion. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Jim, how does the issue close out? Uh, it's a quick one. Uh, the actual wedding is basically two panels, <laughs> which is epic. And then uh, the bottom half of the page is just a big in-joke. Um, Nick Fury finds out, uh, basically gets told that there's two people trying to crash the party after all the villains have shown up. He says, uh, you know, <clears throat> I don't care who they are, Gabe. No one comes in without an invite. That's an order. So they kick these two guys out and they don't show you who they are. They're just these two top hatted gentlemen. And then in the final panel, bump bump, you find out that it's Stan and Jack and they were trying to make their way into the wedding, but they're not allowed. And so they're all a little bit kind of hurt and they say, what about that? Imagine them keeping us out, Stan. We'll show them, Jack. Let's get back to the bullpen and start writing the next ish. Which is it's, so great. Oh, yeah. Now, we do get a couple caption boxes in the issue. You you can just picture Stanley getting the final copy and being like, wait, Namor and Hulk are not in this. And so they just add two little caption boxes that explain the Hulk was busy on another <laughs> adventure. And Dr. Doom tried to get Namor up here, but he's too busy. Atuma came instead. Uh, so so you, <laughs> you did get some brief mentions that they're not there. Uh, what were your overall impressions of this issue as, uh, as fans of 60s Marvel craziness? Uh, and did you have a single favorite moment in this book? You can go first, Heather. For me, the, um, for me, the chaos of it is a blast. Yeah. Go ahead, Heather. Oh, um, it's such a clusterfuck. I don't know if I can pick <laughs> one single moment. <laughs> I do kind of love the most dramatic coincidence of the year. Because it's just like, <laughs> oh, here's this great danger. Oh, <clears throat> nope, it's okay because it's been canceled out by another danger. Like it's, 
just so chaotic. <laughs> but that might be one of my favorite moments when two of the dangers just happen to cancel each other out because, you know, why not? Because <laughs> we're running out of pages. We got to get this thing done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Jim, how about you? Overall impression? And did you have I a mean, favorite moment? I got to admit, you know, Stan promised us the most colossal collection of costume characters crazily cavorting and capering in continual combat. And and they did deliver on everything they promised. It is one of the, it, it's so rapid fire. You know, when I read old comics like this, I am sometimes amazed how much they pack into these issues. And in some ways, you know, obviously the pacing feels so rapid and crazy compared to what we're used to with more decompressed storytelling and more dramatic kind of, you know, interplay but there's something to be said for expediency also that they were able to blow this thing out in 24 pages is really quite fun you know the original galactus saga is like a two-part story right like like this you know they did grand epic kind of cosmic stuff and they just relentless sugar rush pacing on all of it and there's something really fun about that 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 um it, it allows you to kind of bulldoze past some of the more ridiculousness you know, of it and just kind of enjoy the ride. Uh, did you have a single favorite moment? If not, it's okay. Uh, I do actually like when the watcher drags Reed to the fourth dimension. It's Kirby was doing these, these weird photo montages where he would take photographs and photostats and, and stitch them all together to make these surrealist kind of pieces. And he gets really ambitious with it in this period. And some of them I find, just genuinely visually disturbing. Like they're very strange and they're off-putting, but that's kind of the point of them as well. Uh, and this one in here is just sufficiently bonkers. Uh, it's good stuff. You get like, let's introduce 17 pages on one, or characters on one page, but let's do a whole page of yeah. reading the Watcher floating through the fourth dimension. And uh, that's all Kirby pacing, right? Because the way that they would work, you know, Stan would give the outline and then Kirby would draw the pages and then Stan would come in and do the dialogue after. So that's like Kirby by choice. Like I'm this, we're going to blow this out. This is one of the, the most important moments. You know, the actual wedding will get two panels crammed in there, but the watcher dragging him to the fourth dimension is going to get a full page spread. I mean, well, all right. Target audience back then was white boys, right? Uh, they don't want to yeah. read 20 pages of wedding stuff. They want the action. Uh, this was an event too. It's worth noting. This did not take place in the standard Fantastic Four title. They put it in an annual, which was like a special, more expensive mm -hmm. issue with reprints. 25 uh, cents. <laughs> which is a big deal back then when comics yeah. were 12 cents. Yeah. Uh, my single favorite moment was easily the first couple pages with Dr. Doom just throwing his tantrum on a throne. Uh, <laughs> it, it's... Absolute ridiculousness. Now, um, when we uh, we're going to close out here in just a minute, uh, but let me get your reactions quickly on the issue we're going to review next. So if you guys look in the chat, I uploaded an image uh, it, in our next issue. We're going to take another deep dive a little bit back into the past uh, into Journey into Mystery 109, where we see uh, Thor fighting Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Uh, just tell me some of your initial impressions of this cover. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing. <laughs> the menace of Magneto, most powerful of the evil mutants. Uh, looks great. I mean, you got your Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, so you know I'm happy. Thor is all thighs. Magneto is zapping the hammer right out of his hand. Uh, Heather, I know you love Wanda's original costume in the back there. Oh, so much. <laughs> <laughs> the opera gloves right up to the shoulder. Oh, yeah. 
big time. So uh, so as we close out, if you guys are looking for Gray Malkin Lane, uh, we're going to continue to put out uh, a little bit of extra content through the month of January. Then we'll be back to our weekly schedule. We have some really, really incredible things coming up. Uh, our next uh, our next uh, review is going to be the issue we just talked about. We're going to have the incredible writer uh, Terry Blass on with us, who recently did Marvel's series Reptile. Uh, and uh, if you want to look for us online, you can find Gray Malkin Lane on Twitter under Gray Malkin P, P like podcast, or on Instagram under Gray Malkin Lane. I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos that I post about. Uh, but uh, but feel free to chat with me through either of those platforms at any point. Uh, Heather, where can people find you? And then Jim, and uh, where can people find you online? And what work can we look forward to coming up from you uh, if you're able to talk about it? Uh, so Heather first and then Jim. Um, I am on Instagram and Twitter at Heather underscore Beth underscore. Nice. Um, as I mentioned before, you can find about all my stuff on at jimzub.com. So just J-I-M-Z-U-B.com. That's got all my social media links. That's got interviews and reviews and, and links to all my books and stuff like that bibliography. I've also got a really extensive list of, of blog posts and tutorials about how to write comics. So if you want to pitch your own stories or find out how the comic industry and publishing industry work, I've got like probably 30 or 40 free articles that I've written there on my website. I have a Patreon as well that I use as a script archive. So for the price of a fancy coffee, you can dig through over 250 uh, scripts that I've got um, in my archive, along with pitches, uh, editorial notes, lettering notes, all kinds of different stuff that I've gotten over the years. So you can really understand how stories evolve and how the work gets done. Um, lots of creators have told me, you know, that they found it really helpful when they were getting their start. And I, uh, you know, it's the kind of information that I wished I'd had when I was getting my start, you know, in the industry. Um, in terms of upcoming projects, I'm already finished on Avengers Tech On, um, but the last issue is going to be coming out, I think, in a couple of weeks uh, at the time of this podcast. Um, I'm thrilled to let you know that I have a bunch of Marvel work that I'm doing in 2022, but none of it has been announced. Um, but I've got, uh, what can I say? What can I say? I've got a team book that I'm really excited about. I know people really like it when I write teams because they love the interplay of these characters. It's got some of my absolute favorite characters on it, some of which you may have seen recently or will be seeing in upcoming Marvel kind of movie and TV stuff. Um, I'll try not to spoiler too much here. I've got an X related project that I am doing. Uh, I was given a challenge by editor Mark Basso to take a character with a very convoluted history and essentially retell it and, and, and refurbish, not refurbish it. I'm not changing anything. I'm just sort of streamlining and, and organizing a bunch of information that has been around for a long time and making it easier for both new readers and longtime readers to easily dig into and understand. And uh, it has been one of the most challenging, but also a really satisfying project as well. And that's something in the mutant realm. So when you see it announced, I think you'll find it very interesting. Uh, maybe we'll want to talk about it at some future point. Yes, please. Um, I can't wait for your I can't wait for your series featuring Whirlwind coming out. That's right. Yeah, now Whirlwind, <laughs> clearly I've got to add to my add to the pool. And then the third one is um is a project that I actually pitched. I can't tell you what it is yet, but uh, 
before I ever got my first Marvel credit, I was working at the Udon studio. I was a project manager. I was helping to organize things at the studio and they were doing books at Marvel, like uh, agent X. They were doing Sentinel. They were coloring the uncanny X-Men at that point. Um, and so I really wanted to write. And so I asked if I could like pitch some story ideas. And my boss at the Udon studio was like, sure, I could pass stuff along to the editor, to Joe Cusada, the editor in chief at the time. And so a friend of mine and I, we pitched some story ideas. One of them was for the Marvel Max line, which was their mature readers imprint. Sure. And they basically said, uh, yeah, that sounds kind of neat, but you literally have no writing credit. So we don't know who you are. Uh, nice job kid, but no. And um, now uh, uh, 17 years later, I had the chance to pitch it again and um, I'm doing it. So uh in some ways, my first Marvel project that never was is now going to be one of my newest Marvel projects in 2022. So we just, through a weird series of conversations, someone was talking to me about different story stuff. And I remembered this old pitch and I blew the digital dust off this thing and repitched it. And, uh, and it's happening now. And when it finally comes about, I can't wait to promote it and tell people about it because it's such a unexpected curveball of a project that I never thought I would be able to do. So, yeah. Hearing you talk about your work, uh, I was already an enormous fan. I'm an enormous fan even more now. I can't wait to see what you have coming out. You Thank talk you. about uh, a character with a convoluted X history, and that's literally all of the characters. I know. <laughs> that's why I felt like it was a safe, it was a safe bet for me to be able to say. Uh, I actually, I yeah. Oh, oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. No, it's a. Working on this project, I thought I knew the character pretty well. That was, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, I, that, that won't be, I mean, it'll be some work, but I can do this. And the deeper I've dived into it, the more I appreciate kind of the depth and breadth and ridiculousness of, of what has come out around over the years. So I actually have never shared this on the podcast before. Back when I worked for the Marvel Handbooks, which was several years, I actually pitched out of the blue, uninvited, uh, four books to Marvel and I worked really hard on them and I was really proud of them. And one of them had the character Whirlwind in it, ironically. <laughs> uh, and I had a really gracious editor look them over and say, great work, but also you haven't written anything. So go right? make a name for yourself. So I wrote seven books, uh, indie books, and only got one of them published. And it took four years. And then I never wrote another comic book because it was so much uh, effort <laughs> on my own trying to scrounge my way up. Uh, that book is called The Mushroom Murders. For anyone who wants to look it up, it's on Amazon. Uh, but but Jim, you have the tenacity to stick it out. Uh, I, I I think you are incredible. And I can't wait to Thanks, see what man. you have coming next. Um, what a what a charming and wonderful way to spend an evening with uh, with incredible and passionate people. Uh, thank you so much for nerding out with me tonight. I hope that you had a good time reviewing this insane old issue. Uh, and uh, and Jim, thank you in particular for sacrificing your time and talking about your work. My absolute pleasure. It's wonderful to meet you, Heather and Chad. I, it's just oh. great to chat with both of you. And uh, you know, I, I say this a lot, but I really do mean it. I love this stuff. I've loved it since I was a kid and being able to contribute to it and build on, you know, put new, new bricks in the house of ideas, I think is uh, really special. And I try to never take that for granted. So if you have read my work uh, and enjoyed it, that means the world to me. If you read my work and it didn't quite hit the spot for you, I hope you give it another try or try something new that I've got coming out. And if you've never read any of the stories I've written for the Marvel universe or elsewhere, please give it a try and uh, let me know what you think. 
I want to do a whole podcast with you where we can just talk about things like live wires and the femme fatale live and wires. all these characters that you just love. Yes. <laughs> I love, I love the work you're doing. Thanks, man. Yeah. Uh, Heather, any final words from you? No, this was a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm so glad you guys were here. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll see you guys back next time on Gray Malkin Lane with Terry Bloss. Uh, in two weeks, we have the uh, long-awaited trial of Kane Marco coming up. We have an epic episode with some incredible jury members uh, putting Juggernaut on trial, and it's going to be uh, amazing. I've been working really hard on it for a long time, so it's going to be uh, fantastic. Uh, thank you all so much. Have a beautiful uh, uh, evening, and Happy New Year, everybody. We'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Bye.